Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Hello out there, and welcome to Pro-Life Thinking, a Life Training Institute podcast in which we talk about the abortion issue and larger issues related to bioethics in a way that's winsome, reasonable, and persuasive. I'm Clinton Wilcox, and today I have a special guest joining me. And I'm sailing with Russell, chasing that heartbeat, playing on the sunshine, and laughing with heaven. And sailing with Russell, like I'm walking on the water. All right, my uh, guest today is Russell D. Silvestro. And uh, yeah, don't you feel special? My guests uh, get a theme song when they come on. I have never been introduced with a theme song in my life, so thank you very much, Clinton. Hey, it's my pleasure. I'm happy to have you here. Russell D. Silvestro is uh, yeah, uh, it's great to have you. Uh, now, Russell D. Silvestro is professor and chair of the Department of Philosophy at California State University, Sacramento. He holds philosophy degrees from Indiana University, a BA, Biola University, an MA, and Bowling Green State University, an MA and a PhD and has been teaching at Sacramento State since 2006. From 2012 to 2016, he served as director of their Center for Practical and Professional Ethics, and his teaching and research helped support their department's major concentration in ethics, politics, and law. In 2010, he published a book in Springer's Philosophy and Medicine series titled Human Capacities and Moral Status. Russell and his wife, Heather, have have seven daughters and one son, ranging in in age from 18 to 1. Russell, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I'm really glad to be with you today. Now, we, we are recording this show live, so I'm going to be interacting with Russell for about a half hour or so, then I'll open it up to callers. If there are no callers, then I'll continue on with my questions. If you have a question for Russell, you can call in at 646-668-8597. Once again, that number is 646-668-8597. So the, the main topic that I, I have for us to, to discuss today is mainly his book, Human Capacities and Moral Status, which, uh, which I happen to have on my bookshelf, and it's been an excellent resource. In fact, I just recently wrote an article for a Christian research journal on sort of an Aristotelian defense of the pro-life position, and I actually used uh, Russell's book as a, as a, a major source for, for that 
article that I wrote. And so it's, it's an excellent resource. And I wanted to talk about it today with Russell because I, I hope to encourage anyone out there listening to at least consider picking up this book and, and putting it on your bookshelf, especially if you're doing work in the, in the pro-life movement. So before we start to talk about the book itself, uh, Russell, I'm just kind of curious on how you originally became pro-life. Oh, well, honestly, the combination of getting involved in philosophy as a freshman in college and also having a, a religious conversion around that time to Christianity made me sort of overdetermined, I think, to be a pro-life kind of person. Uh, I grew up with a very uh, pro-life family and a family that exposed me to a lot of good religious teaching. Uh, and so both of those things together probably uh, – laid the, the groundwork, laid some of the seeds that eventually bloomed into being sort of a person that had a strong pro-life cluster of convictions. Um, I would say that one of the more important events in making me want to write about it and talk about it rather than just sort of hold the beliefs and maybe vote in directions that were pro-life turned out right. to be going to Oxford, England uh, during my uh, summer between my sophomore and junior year of college because in that opportunity, I was reading a bunch of books by some British utilitarians uh, like Jonathan Glover and uh, uh, other folks who write in a somewhat more conventional pro-choice direction. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like there's something wrong with these writings and the way that they're trying to uh, persuade people to be um, pro-choice in clusters of ways. And so I felt like I wanted to research more and write more uh, to defend pro-life thinking. And so, you know, I picked up some books like Francis Beckwith's Politically Correct Death. I read up a little bit on some common articles like Don Marquis' famous piece called Why Abortion is Immoral. And so that kind of got me thinking about philosophical arguments for a broadly pro-life position Hmm. when I was a pretty young undergraduate. Okay. Is that sort of what led you into wanting to to become a philosopher, or was that uh, sort of independent of your becoming pro-life and wanting to learn more about that? You know, um, I would say the... Uh, Becoming a philosopher and the becoming of more pro-life happened about the same time. And so it's kind of hard for me to say which of those would be the chicken and which would be the egg. (laughs) They sort of just materialized uh, together. And I I would say that my my philosophical training, even as an undergraduate, continued to reinforce my pro-life leanings. Uh, even when I was reading people who were sort of attacking pro-life uh, positions, both those that were kind of already in the philosophy literature and those that were just more broadly uh, circulating in political discussions and things like that. So it wasn't through lack of listening to the spectrum of positions on abortion and other kinds of pro-life issues, but it was precisely because I felt like I was trying to pay attention to both the political arguments that were being made and the different kinds of philosophical arguments that were being made, and I just found myself as I gradually listened to those feeling more and more persuaded that there were better arguments for the pro-life positions that I had encountered. 
Okay. So you mentioned your research and, and learning more about it made you want to write on the topic. Is that sort of what went into wanting to write this book on human capacities, or or was there something else that was kind of the catalyst? I mean, I, I understand that it's, yeah. it was your uh, dissertation, I think, but but, but like, right. what was like the yeah, what were the kind of the things that went into wanting to tackle this more sophisticated philosophical topic specifically? Oh yes, I'd be happy to try to connect those dots. So after getting my undergraduate degree in philosophy at Indiana University. I enrolled in a master's degree program, like you mentioned, at Biola University. And very early in that program, I was reading a pre-publication draft of a book that later became a book titled Body and Soul. And it's co-authored by J.P. Moreland and Scott Ray. These were two of my professors at Biola University in the master's program that I was studying in. And as I read those articles, excuse me, really chapter drafts, and then eventually read the book that came out from those chapter drafts, I became persuaded that the kind of argument they were advancing in that book was really a solid approach to the pro-life position. It wasn't only concerned with pro-life issues. It was concerned with questions about the, the relationship between your body and your soul, sort of a anthropology of the human person, thinking about life and death, but it also dealt with ethical issues, not just at the beginning of life, but at the end of life and at lots of stages in between. So as I read that, I felt like, wow, this is a very uh, helpful approach. It's combining biblical uh, teaching with the philosophical thinking coming from folks like Aristotle and Aquinas and contemporary friends of Aquinas and Aristotle. And so the way they were blending together the philosophical insights of that whole kind of uh, tradition, both in metaphysics and in moral thinking, the way they were blending those together with biblical insights about the human person, I thought was a very attractive approach. And so I figured I wanted to try to work within that same style of trying to be consistent with biblical teaching, but also to try to spell things out in a sophisticated or relatively sophisticated philosophical language so that people who didn't already share biblical convictions could feel like the arguments were accessible to them. I felt like I wanted to try to do that. And so, as a result, my my studies in graduate school uh, after the master's degree, when I went to Bowling Green State University, was focused around a lot of issues uh, sort of delivering philosophical arguments that were kind of consistent with the approach in body and soul, but also trying to branch out from that cluster of ideas, sort of connect it to some more contemporary philosophical writing and see whether or not I could build upon the successes that I felt were already present in that tradition and just articulated in ways that were uh, even sharper in certain directions than they already were. Hmm. Is, that, is that a fair stab at an answer? Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. So let's go ahead then and get into the uh, the content of the book. Sure. You outline 
two temporary change arguments in the course of your book. The first one you indicate is more of a, a metaphysical temporary change argument in which you argue if something is human, it has a set of typical human capacities. If something has a set of typical human capacities, it has serious moral status. Uh, therefore, if something is human, it has serious moral status. So let's go ahead and begin by by asking what exactly do you mean by capacities? Yeah, well... I just mean by capacities, uh, powers, or potentialities, or dispositions. Those are terms that are sometimes used to do different work in different contexts, but I try to be as simple as I can and say, I really mean by a capacity, or a power, or a disposition, or a potential. I mean the same basic thing. So to take common examples, I have the capacity to feel pain if I'm poked. That's the same as saying I have the power to feel pain if I'm poked, or I have the disposition to feel pain if I'm poked, or the potential to feel pain if I'm poked. Likewise, I have the capacity to lift my arm right now if I, if I will it, if I choose to. That's the power to lift my arm, the disposition to lift my arm, the potential to lift my arm. Now, those kinds of features of people, I think, are common sense, and I think that they provide a language that you can also apply to even non-human things like your dog and your tree in your backyard or your acorn in your backyard. So right, like my kind dog, of what um... makes it Oh, right, like like my dog has the uh, capacity to bark at all hours of the morning. That's exactly right. <laughs> and, uh, um, now, the the twist about capacities uh, in the plural is that you know we, any of these things we've been talking about your dog, the acorn in your backyard, and you have has has a number of capacities at any given time. And in fact, I don't even try to number how many there are. There's so many, you would quickly lose count of how many there are. Mm. But it's a way of focusing on features of the thing with a sort of dynamic dimension to it. In other words, it's not just looking at the color that you have right now. It's looking at what you have the capacity to do right now, whether you're doing it or not. So sometimes you'll know what capacities you have because you're actually exercising them at the very moment that you happen to be thinking about. Other times, you have capacities that you are not exercising at the moment, but you still have them. And you may have never exercised some of your capacities before, and yet you still have them. Um, that's sort of the quick and dirty definition of what a capacity is. Okay, and so when you say, if something is human, it has a set of typical human capacities, then what you're essentially saying there is that anything that is of the biological species human has a set of capacities that are common to all biological members of that species. Is that correct? Yes, that's fair. Um, and this is something that may get into other questions you have, but capacities are structured in a way that sometimes takes a lot of time before they can be exercised. So, for example, when I was a one-year-old baby, I could not yet speak the English language. Right, but as my abilities to use speech gradually developed, 
then my capacity to speak English gradually emerged. Now, there's a way that I spell that out in the book that's consistent with the way a number of thinkers have tried to describe this process of emerging capacities. And roughly the idea is I may not have the immediate capacity to speak English as a one-year-old, but I do have the higher order capacity to develop the immediate capacity to speak English as a one-year-old. Okay, so the idea is if you use the number one or first to talk about a first-order capacity, and then you use the number two or the word second to talk about a second-order capacity, the way people can describe this is when I was just a little infant, I may have had, say, the second-order capacity to develop the first-order capacity to speak English. But I might not have actually had the first-order capacity at that moment. So, in general, lower-order capacities are realized by developing the higher-order capacities uh, to have those lower-order capacities. Okay. And, now, and again, so this is what... let me just pause oh, and say I'm not really I'm not really wedded to this exact particular way of trying to number things or to structure them. It's a way of trying to be more helpful in explaining something that I think we're all familiar with. It's just sometimes we stumble when we try to articulate it precisely. And so my book is one way of trying to articulate that structure more precisely to say how, yeah, even if you don't have the thousands of capacities that, you know, you do right at this moment, right? Because it's taking you a long time to develop all those immediate capacities. Still, from the earliest stages of your existence, you really already had those typical human capacities. They were just in a sort of latent form. You had the capacity to develop those capacities long before you actually did develop those capacities. Yeah, and sometimes when I talk to people about capacities and and about how the unborn have these sort of latent capacities, what someone who is skeptical of us having capacities at all will often refer to DNA. And they'll say that when we say something like we have the inherent capacity uh, or the latent capacity to speak English or to develop a brain or these kinds of things, that what, what that really is is just that's in our DNA. And our DNA is what grounds the existence of these properties. And so they'll sometimes say that they, they don't believe we have these capacities uh, inherently, but that the DNA allows it to develop to the point where we have it presently. How would you respond to someone who kind of makes that sort of objection against the existence of capacities? Yeah, well, there's actually a number of things going on in that objection, as you've described it. On the one hand, I think many pro-life people would eagerly welcome the suggestion that what grounds these capacities is the DNA of an individual, because that move, as it were, quickly connects up with the idea that, well, the DNA of an individual can be traced back all the way to the moment of fertilization or the process of fertilization or syngamy or exactly wherever you draw that line when the new DNA uh, type, the new genotype comes into existence because of the biochemical changes that happen with the fusion of sperm and egg and stuff like that. So in some ways, that particular objection actually is something that a lot of pro-lifers would welcome without too much hesitation. They'd say, yeah, the DNA is what grounds the capacity. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so we should think carefully about when a, an individual has the DNA in order to ground the relevant cluster of capacities. Now, right. I, I I don't actually in the book go all the way to try to say, look, DNA is necessary for having these capacities. And the process that I use for trying to spell that out, it, it actually involves uh, kind of two different strategies. And so um, if, if you want to cut me off at any time, I'm happy to uh, spell it out or, or to go back to stuff. But in a nutshell, one, one strategy is to say that DNA, as humans currently have it, just happens to be one uh, molecular structure, one type of molecular structure that's very useful for us to investigate. But you can imagine an alien species that doesn't have any DNA at all, but has some other kind of uh, molecular structure, and I call it XYZ, just as shorthand. And you can imagine this other creature having XYZ molecular structure and having nothing like DNA, and yet this alien creature with XYZ might still have the same typical uh, human capacities that you and I do. And so what that suggests, and the way I try to argue it, is that, look, I'm not really wedded to DNA if you want to go to the molecular route. I'm, I'm, if anything, wedded to a molecular structure that can be the basis of these typical human capacities, whether it's DNA, whether it's XYZ or whatever. Okay, so that's one strategy. Mm-hmm. But the, the additional strategy is that I think we need to be careful to uh, leave open the possibility that it is not at the end of the day the molecular structure itself uh, or the, uh, the physical components themselves that are the carriers of the capacity, um, but rather those are more just tools that are used by the organism to unfold its capacities. And so, I mean, the quick and dirty explanation is later in the book, I examined several cases of uh, near-death experiences, and I actually argue in a somewhat more friendly way that the, the individual can persist even if they have an out-of-body experience. And I know this is not really a popular way to argue for it, but it seems like in those cases, the individual during the time when it's disembodied is not endowed with DNA, and yet it still retains its cluster of capacities for various forms of consciousness. And so what that suggests, if you want to go that way, is that you don't even have to have XYZ or DNA in order to have a set of typical human capacities. Um, you, can be, you can be an immaterial individual and still retain those capacities. Now, that, that particular style of argument is not going to be as appealing to everybody. Um, I do try to motivate why it makes sense to think carefully through the near-death experiences, people who have actually had them, and informing our view on a very cautious basis. But um, mm-hmm. that's one of the arguments I advance for saying, don't be completely sold out to DNA being necessary. You You would actually agree then with, the abortion choice philosophers who would say that it's not 
uh, that biological humanity has nothing to do with our moral status. It's actually something else that does the work of grounding our, our moral status as, as an individual with with rights. Is that correct? Well, I might put it slightly differently. I, I don't think I would say that our biological humanity has nothing to do with our moral status. I would say that it is not a necessary uh, condition of our moral status because okay. I'm arguing that uh, the alternate creature, which has the same capacities as a human individual, could still have the sort of moral status that a human individual has even if it had a radically different uh, genotype structure, even if it had a radically different sort of genealogy, if it wasn't related to any existing humans, if it was just put together um, on some other planet, either because of God or because of evolution or because of some combination of God and evolution. What I'm wanting to say is um, the sort of thing that we are most familiar with in our own case as individuals and in the case of our conspecifics with other humans, that's often taken to be like the necessary condition for having our moral status. And I'm, I'm simply saying, look, it may be sufficient. It may be enough, but it's probably not best to think of it as necessary. Um, one of the fictional examples that I sometimes use uh, for people who like this sort of thing is the character from C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. Uh, there's one called um, Out of the Silent Planet, uh, where uh, folks go to Mars and they reach, meet some other rational creatures. And then there's one um, where uh, I think in the second book of the series they go to uh, they go to Venus and they meet these humanoid creatures, like a male and female creature from Venus, that are kind of like the Adam and Eve sort of characters, but for Venus rather than Earth, right? But these creatures have yeah. the same sorts, of, same sorts of capacities, same sorts of powers, same sorts of potentials, same sorts of dispositions that you would find in either current humans or maybe the first humans, and so... The idea is it's not that hard for people who are familiar with this story to quickly see, oh, yeah, those kinds of creatures could easily have the sorts of rights that we do. They just happen to be green, right? And they right. Um, might not have DNA exactly like ours. Yeah, so for the purpose of the metaphysical temporary change argument then, when you argue that if something has a set of typical human capacities, it has serious moral status, and you conclude that if something is human, it has serious moral status, what is it that you mean by serious moral status? What, what is that term signifying? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. And I, I talk about this a little bit in a couple parts of the book, but you know what I mean by serious moral status is a, it's like a placeholder for whatever moral status you and I have, like in our prime. And so I should probably spill that out a little bit more. I do think that there is such a thing as a right to life, and I think that that's a very good way of articulating part of our moral status. But I think that that's only one aspect of our moral status. It's uh, an aspect that deals with the kinds of entitlements that we have, against being uh, harmed or killed by other human beings, uh, at least as sort of the default position. Um, and I, I want to say that the serious moral status also includes 
say the right not to be uh, spoken ill of or, or cursed. And, you know, I didn't really spell this out in the book, but part of the thinking here is from the uh, New Testament letter of James, where, you know, James writes about how it really doesn't make sense to have blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth, especially if you're blessing God and then you're cursing your fellow human beings, right? Uh, and I want to say that, look, there's a kind of, there's a kind of uh, dignity that each individual has that not only gives it the right to life, but the right not to be uh, cursed. Um, and so, you know, I'm, of course, focused on issues in the biomedical realm, and so there's not a big danger of people being cursed <laughs> all over the place in the biomedical realm. Really, the, right. the threats there come more with uh, treating human beings more like disposable raw materials for other mm -hmm. kinds of good goals that humanity may have, um, rather than as the sort of locus of value and rights on their own. So mm -hmm. let me back up a step and say, even yeah. before you get to the idea of cursing or even before you get to the idea of rights, the idea of moral status is that uh, individuals with moral status have a welfare, have a set of interests, they have the uh, ability to be harmed or benefited, and they also have the ability to be wronged or um, the opposite of whatever wronging would be. Uh, and so moral status is a placeholder for the idea that if someone wrongs you, uh, you know, that is something that is a wrong to you as an individual. So, for example, a common example that is used is that my computer, right, my Apple computer, it's, it's got sort of a value to me, but if somebody, you know, smashed the computer, um, they would not really be wronging the computer, but they might be wronging me as the owner of the computer. So right. people often say, look, my computer doesn't really have moral status, even though it has value to me. However, imagine my, um, imagine my dog, or let's imagine, uh, easier case, imagine my uh, one-year-old. Right? If someone were to do to my one-year-old what they did to the computer, they would not only be wronging me right, as the parent who loves this child, but they would also right. be wronging the child itself. Okay, and so this is what is commonly used to distinguish things that have moral status from mm. things that are, you know, valuable to humans but may not have moral status in their own right. Okay, and so people who believe that non-human animals of various sorts have a kind of moral status, they will be happy to use the example of the dog, right? They would say, look, if you did something terrible to my dog, you are harming me as the owner of the dog or as the lover of the dog, but you're also harming the dog and you're wronging the dog in its own right. Mm. And so whether you, whether or not you think that the dog has rights or an entitlement, um, you could at least recognize that the dog has a sort of moral status that it, it can be wronged uh, and the wrong is often done uh, by, you know, not respecting the kinds of, uh, features that the dog itself has. So when we talk about moral status, then we're talking about an individual thing that can actually be harmed, not necessarily that it has rights, but that it itself can actually just be harmed. Is, is there a distinction there to be made, or is, that's is something, correct? Or so let me back up and say uh, I, I appreciate you asking the follow-up question. Um, 
the, the concept of moral status is something that does not by itself, for many people, get you all the way to having rights. But when I say the concept of serious moral status, I include that word serious to try to be like a way of pointing to the sort of moral status that human, adult, normal persons like you and I have. And so yeah. that way of characterizing it quickly brings into play the concepts of rights and things like that. So even though I, uh, even though I don't spell out in like full exhaustive detail what all the different rights would be of someone with serious moral status, I take it as the idea that it, as a baseline, includes what you might call a strong moral uh, presumption against killing an individual. So here's where we get into the concept of a thing's life and the value of a thing's life to itself. And so I would say, even if you aren't fully on board with the idea of there being absolute rights, you can still recognize that there is a presumption against killing a normal adult human being. You would even probably be willing to go along with the idea that there is a strong presumption, a strong moral presumption. So it's not even just a legal one, right? Even in a society where they haven't yet developed a structure of laws that protect the rights of various kinds of individuals, we kind of intuit or we can see uh, that there is a moral reason, a moral presumption against taking the life of a a human individual. Um, So, again, I say it's a strong moral presumption to try to characterize it in language that says it's not just sort of some minor moral presumption. I mean, I would say that if you uh, were in a situation where you, um, you know, were comparing, well, how strong is the presumption against cursing and how strong is the presumption against killing? I would probably think most people are saying, well, there's there's an even stronger presumption against killing than there is against cursing. Um, So anyhow, I'm, I'm not really wedded to that, but I just want to emphasize it. The presumption against killing is a strong presumption. Okay, so then your inclusion of the word serious, the, the qualifier serious to the moral status in your argument then, is sort of a stronger presumption than just regular moral status. Because where we might say, for example, a dog has some moral status because you can you can harm it. If you step on a dog's paw, it yelps out in pain. So we could say that that dog has been harmed by having its paw stepped on, that doesn't necessitate then that the thing that can be harmed also has rights. It's that word serious then that you're using to indicate that it's a stronger presumption than just regular moral status. Is that? Yeah, that's fair. That's that's quite fair. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. So then um, how does a a human's being an organism relate to its moral status? Because I know you talk a little bit about how humans are organisms and how does that then relate to us as individuals or our moral status? Yeah, that's a good question. And the the short answer is the idea of an organism I take to be an idea that's very helpful in sorting out um, where the individuals uh, can be found. And so uh, let me back up and just say um, the the parts of a human organism are not necessarily themselves human organisms. So, for example, my leg or my skin cell or my um, gametes, 
like the sperm that I carry or the the ovum that a woman carries, uh, those kinds of parts of an organism are not necessarily the the individuals that have the capacities uh, that are the typical human capacities. Rather, the organisms themselves are the locus of the capacities. So if you're wanting to say, okay, who has the capacity, me or my leg, right, or me or my brain, or me or my whatever, you're always going to want to see me. And when you're talking about me, I think that pointing to the organism is a helpful uh, stand-in for the individual that is the locus of the capacities. Mm. I'm not sure if that helps you or not Uh, clarify what I mean by it. Yeah, I, I was just kind of uh, curious. Are, are you familiar with the work of uh, – oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I, maybe I'm going to dovetail with what you were going to, but there is a philosophical position that is often called animalism about human uh, – about what it is that it takes for a person to exist over time. And so animalism is basically the idea that you are – the human animal. You are the human organism. You know, there's various versions of animalism out there, and one of the famous philosophers who's currently writing on this would be um, Eric Olson. And even though not every person who writes about animalism is themselves like a pro-life philosopher, there are a number of people who think that the animalist position is like a good uh, philosophically defensible position saying, look, you are not just your brain. You are the animal. You are the organism that has a brain. Of course, animalism is a little tricky because sometimes it's used to distinguish one position from like a traditional soul position that says you are the soul, right? You are, um, or, or maybe the, you are the soul body complex or something like that. So sometimes right. animalism is spelled out in a way that has a little bit more of a physicalistic flavor um, some people are very proud of that. Other people are very kind of ambivalent about it. But uh, mm. I, I don't mean, f- perhaps it's clear already from what I said, I don't mean to insist on a, an animalistic position that has a physicalistic flavor to it or a physicalistic uh, bent or ontology. And yeah, actually, that's Maybe, exactly yeah. where I... Yeah. Oh, no, 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 you're fine. That's actually exactly where I was going to go. I was going to ask if you were familiar with the work of, of Eric Olson and his uh, animalism position. And then he just yes. went right into that. So, yeah. Would, would you, you have know, a while I, if... I, I have not kept up with all of the twists and turns in the literature on animalism as much as I should have the last couple of years. But um, I, I think that that's a position that is defensible and in broad strokes, it's similar mm. to the one that I'm spelling out. I recently read Olson's book on animalism, and obviously, as I'm a, I'm a Christian myself, and so I do believe in the soul. And so uh, I think that Olson's animalism is only part of the story, and I think psychological accounts of the human person, like you find in Michael Tooley's work, uh, is only part of the, the equation. I, I consider myself a Protestant Thomist. So I do come from yeah. kind of a hylomorphic background in which I do believe that the human person is a, a composite of soul and body, form and matter, uh, that kind of thing. And, but I, I do think uh, Olson's animalism actually comes much closer to the truth than psychological accounts do because it takes into account uh, that we are also organisms and that, uh, and that our development is important as well. And uh, I haven't been able yeah. to find this particular answer, but would you happen to know if Olson himself is pro-life or if he considers himself pro-choice? 
I confess that I don't know. And I can tell yeah. you an example of someone who takes a lot of Olson's material uh, mm. and ends up with a pro-choice position at the end of the day, and that would be yeah. David de Grazia. Uh, David de Grazia is an outstanding philosopher who I believe teaches at George uh, Washington University. Anyhow, he wrote a book called uh, The Human Animal – or no, it's called Human Identity and Bioethics. Mm. And I've taught from this book before, and it's just a really well-designed uh, book. Although, interestingly, what Olson uh, contributes to the book, sorry, is not really because, you know, he's written for it. It's rather that De Grazia has read very closely what Olson has articulated about what you and I are. Um, and he wants to say, yes, we are a human organism. And so it mm -hmm. makes sense to think of us as a human organism. Um, and so the beginning and end of each of us is the beginning and end of a human organism. But De Grazia ends up with more of a standard kind of gradualist pro-choice position about human moral status. And that's okay. because um, he, he has the view that, you know, your interests and your rights and other kinds of things like that are really a little bit more tied to the mental states that you have at different stages of time and the relations that you have between your older self and your younger self and things like that. So he relies more on a psychological yeah. glue to help get the sort of uh, time relative interests account up mm -hmm. and running that he ends up um, favoring. And so, yeah, that's an example of somebody who brings on board a lot of the animalist picture about what a human person is, but they end up taking the view that, well, you know, it's, it's not the case that a human organism always has a serious moral status or the right to life, something like that. Rather, you as a human organism maintain, you know, who you are and what you are for as long as you are an organism, but your yeah. your moral status can often fluctuate, almost like the price of a Google stock uh, hmm. price <laughs> or something like that. It right. can go up and down and up and down depending on what other kinds of uh, things hmm. happen to you. Um, over time and what happens to your your brain and your ability to, to look forward to the future, your ability to remember stuff in the past, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so he would basically make a distinction between your biological life and what they would call your biographical life? Um, or... Let's see. Uh, the reason I'm hesitating is because I'm, I'm actually thinking about how that distinction is a is a useful one, although I think it may actually originate with uh, James Rachel's from mm. several decades ago. Um, the biological life is the sort of standard stuff that you read in biology textbooks. Um, the biographical yeah. life is often spelled out to be, you know, what sorts of things that you care about from your perspective um, as like the meaningful stuff about your life, the stuff that you really mm -hmm. care about. Um, other times people fill out a biographical life, not just in terms of what you care about from your perspective, but what other people care about from sort of the third person perspective. So mm -hmm. whether you're focusing on sort of a, a, a strict biographical life, like where other people are writing about you, or whether you're focusing on more of an autobiographical life where you're writing about mm -hmm. yourself, the, the whole point is, um, you know, people can often recognize the distinction between the stuff in your life that matters more to you and to others versus your biological life. 
right? And so, yeah, yeah. My, my, position is, my position is actually something like this. Your biographical life is uh, often going on even when there's nothing that meaningful to you or to other people that's going on whether that's when you're sleeping, whether that's when you're unconscious in other kinds of ways. Um, your biological life may be ticking along uh, quite well, even if your biographical life is sort of on neutral because you don't really care that much about what's going on in that phase right. of your life. But, yeah, so my, my view is that you have serious moral status throughout your biological life. It doesn't mm-hmm. require you to have a bio, biographical life at all. It certainly doesn't require you to have a biographical life uh, every single second of your serious moral status. And that's probably where these temporary change arguments, I believe, get their foothold. And you haven't really asked me a ton about that, but I'm happy to talk about that now or later. It's a certain style of argument that focuses on saying, look, let's take a look at these cases where you're asleep or anesthetized or unconscious in some other way in a temporary coma. Let's use those as the foothold that we use for further reflection on what you are and when you have moral status. Yeah, I'm definitely uh, planning on going there here in, in just a few minutes. I was just ca- kind of curious because I, I remember reading in Olson's book, he, wasn't, he didn't put his animalism in the context of the abortion or euthanasia debate, so I wasn't clear on that aspect of it, but he was clear that he doesn't think the human organism comes into existence until after the primitive streak develops because he doesn't right. think you're an individual before that point. And so, I mean, I guess we could go ahead and, and start there, because I know you do address that kind of argument in your book as well, in that, uh, yeah. you know, some people like Eric Olson would argue that that we're not a human organism or a, or at least a human person before the primitive streak develops, because before that point, none of our cells have differentiated. And, and at that early stage uh, in the embryo's life, any of its cells could could kind of split off and form a new embryo. And so twinning, yeah. they say twinning right. can occur. Or yeah, or the the twins actually could recombine, and so the individuality is up in the air in question at that point. So how would you how would you respond to that kind of an objection? Yeah, I'm happy to talk about this. It's a very very old argument that doesn't come with Eric Olson, but it goes all the way back to at least Mary Warnock and the kinds of British reflections that happened when they were trying to figure out how to regulate various kinds of new technologies for artificial uh, fertilization and stuff like that. So the basic argument that I try to say is, look, the fact that a a thing has the potential to be several different organisms or the potential to split off into several different organisms, that by itself should not automatically make us think that it's not an individual right now. And so, you know, I, I imagine cases where, look, imagine that you yourself were able to somehow divide into two, either because someone's going to do a procedure on you that requires you to be split all the way across as your organism with, you know, half of you surviving, uh, you know, over in one side of the laboratory and the other half of you surviving in the other side of the laboratory. That by itself, right, imagining that experiment should not, I argue, make you think, oh, I'm not an individual right now because right? mm-hmm. I can divide into two. What it should right. make you think is, look, if I were to somehow divide into two, then I've got a sort of really difficult philosophical choice to make. I can either say that I survive as individual A and survive as individual B, or mm-hmm. 
um, I can say, wait a minute, I survive as either individual A or individual B, but I'm not sure which one. Okay. Mm-hmm. Or you can say, I don't survive as either individual A or individual B. Rather, those are two brand new individuals that come into existence at the moment when I split. And it turns out that I'm a third individual from either of those two daughter cells. I am individual C. Okay? So that's a very uh, actually common way for people to spell out what your options are. And I'm just wanting to highlight that the fact that something can divide into more than one individual by itself, that doesn't decide the question of whether it is an individual right now. Mm-hmm. And I would, th- I would take the same kind of cases of potential fusion as I would with potential fission. Okay, so the case I've just described where you could divide into two, that is a case of potential fission. But the mm-hmm. case of potential fusion is like where you imagine, hey, me and my best friend are about to undergo, undergo some strange procedure where a group of scientists is going to combine both of us. They're going to combine both of our bodies into some sort of one uh, flesh. I shouldn't mm-hmm. use that language. It sounds too much like the well, biblical <laughs> marriage account. <laughs> so imagine the idea of you know, being combined into one sort of organism. Uh, you know, out of two, there becomes one organism. And in that case, let's use different letters. Let's imagine I start off as individual X. My best friend is individual Y. And then the resultant organism is individual Z. Uh, the idea here is, even if you admit that X and Y uh, can somehow be fused together to become Z, that by itself doesn't threaten the individuality of X, and it does not threaten the individuality of Y. Rather, what it does is that it forces you to think carefully about the best way of thinking of your persistence through that change. Would the option be that X and Y each die at that moment and a new organism comes into being named Z? Would the case be better described as X continuing on as Z and Y continuing on as Z at the same time? Or would the case be best described as X continuing on as Z and then Y dying? Or, you know, Y continuing on as Z and X dying? My point here is not to say which one of these options it has to be. My point is just to say whichever of those options you pick, you still can clearly think about X being an individual now and Mm -hmm. Y being an individual now. And so all I'm saying is, look... I've just described these kinds of cases of fission and fusion using adult human persons. And I know it's a little science fiction-y, but that sort of reflection can help us be armed with a kind of caution when we approach these early cells um, and whether or not they are individuals. Okay, Just because some sort of multicellular um, embryo can break apart into several different uh, organisms, that doesn't mean that it's not an organism already right now. Yeah, and you know, if you don't like 
science fiction-y thought experiments, then the abortion issue really isn't one that he should be uh, talk, talking about because you have to engage with all sorts of different uh, science fiction scenarios like Thule with his intelligence theorem or Thompson with her violinist that you get attached to at the kidneys. And so, and like the people seeds and, and things that she talks about. Yeah, in fact, related to uh, combining and, and splitting, I don't know how much of a, of a science fiction fan you are, but I often think of, of a show like Star Trek in which uh, a, a transporter accident has split one person into two. And there was an episode in which two people were actually fused into one. And so sometimes I use those as examples. I mean, there's a metaphysical oh, no, question. Good. I mean, there's a metaphysical question in and of itself in which like what happens to the person when they get transported, like, do they die because their molecules get, you know, torn apart or whatever. But leaving that question aside, uh, you know, these science fiction uh, shows do, uh, one reason I enjoy them so much is just because they do explore these questions in a way that a non-science fiction show can't. I agree. I mean, I am someone who obviously has a certain uh, affection for thinking about cases that come from thought experiments. And because of the imagination of people who have written science fiction before me, they provide a wealth of materials to be like, huh, how would you handle this case and that case? <laughs> and part of my part of my sort of defense, I guess, for using science fiction when you're trying to think through these cases is that many cases of science fiction end up becoming cases of science fact as <laughs> technology changes over the years and what people have the ability to do uh, gradually changes. So, yeah, no, so... Uh, then- so uh, okay. Let me just say one word about the transporter cases. Uh, sure. I have in the book a short discussion of some of the kinds of transporter cases, although I confess I did not get them by watching Star Trek. I'm not oh. <laughs> uh, qualified to be a Star Trek uh, junkie or, sorry, a Trekkie. Um, oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting them more from uh, the British philosopher Derek Parfit, who mm. recently passed away, but he wrote a book in 1984 or so called Reasons and Persons. And this book, perhaps most famously, uh, well, sorry, I sh- it's famous for a lot of things, but it's, it's kind of famous for giving uh, in print some really interesting cases of a transporter that can like take a body and then mm somehow duplicate it at a distant location with an exact molecule-for-molecule replication. It's sometimes called a replication machine or a duplication machine. And so, you know, sometimes Parfit introduces these cases as a way of saying, would you think that you would survive? Would you think that you would be the same individual if, you know, you got teleported to Mars, kind of like beam me up, Scotty? And then, of course, the case becomes, well, what happens if the teleporter you know, beams a copy of you up to Mars, but it leaves the original you down here on Earth. Now we've got two individuals who both think that they're you, right? One on Earth and one on Mars. And that gets the discussion rolling of, well, which one should we think is you? Are they both you or either of them you? And Mm. so those kinds of cases um, I think are kind of useful. And honestly, I think that in those kinds of cases, what you've got is, the original you, for my money's worth, is the one who is left here on Earth. And the new individual that's created on Mars is a molecule-for-molecule duplicate of you, but it's not you. But it right. has the same moral status as you. 
both of those individuals, I believe, would have serious moral status because they have, you know, the relevant sorts of capacities, typical human capacities. Yeah, and certainly it seems like both the original and the copy would probably believe themselves to be the original as well. That's correct. Yeah, so, I mean, one of the curious things about these kinds of cases is that it it shows you that just because an individual is fully convinced that he is you, um, that doesn't automatically mean he is you. Right. So, yeah. Um, that's okay. Yeah. I can live with yeah. that. Okay. Yeah. And so not to worry, I do welcome non-Star Trek fans on my show, but okay. if you, but if you, if anyone makes the claim that Star Wars is the superior show to Star Trek, that might be enough to get them banned. Okay, that's good. I, I've, I've worried before whether someone can lose their serious moral status by uh, thinking Star Wars is better than Star Trek. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if I'd go that far, but I think you'd be okay, sure. you know, maybe in danger of it. I don't know. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, so then, uh, okay, so then switching gears a little bit, how then would you respond to psychological accounts of personhood, such as that in order to have serious moral status, you must have to have, or you have to have a concept of yourself, see yourself existing or persisting through time to be a person with serious moral status, because if you don't have a concept of self, you're not being seriously harmed by being killed because you have no plans or desires being thwarted. That's right. Uh, Well, these kinds of accounts, uh, I think, are most fruitfully challenged by imagining cases where you temporarily lose whatever it is people think that you have to have and then regain it again. And then I ask the question, what about that time in between when you had it to begin with and then when you got it back later? And so if we use the example you just brought up of having a concept of a self, if someone says that having a concept of yourself is actually necessary at a given time for having serious moral status at that time, one of the things I do to try to challenge that is to say, you know, imagine that you lost the concept of yourself for some short or long period of time and then regained it again after that period of time had finished. Right? This can happen because of an injury or a disease or maybe someone's got a um, tool that they're using to disable parts of your brain uh, for you know, using radioactive waves or something like that. Let's say that they disable you so you don't have the concept of yourself at that temporary change. Would you or would you not want to say that you still maintain who you are during that change? And would you or would you not want to say that you still maintain your serious moral status during that change? And I want to say when we reflect on cases like this, we are reasonable to say, I would still be there, I would still be me during that change, and I would still have serious moral status during that change. So this is a temporary change argument about what you are, and it's a temporary change argument about um, maintaining your serious moral status. Okay, so uh, we're coming up at about an hour into our talk here, so I'll just remind everyone once again that we are talking live here with Russell D. Silvestro. If you have a question for Russell, you can feel free to call in. The number is 646-668-8597. Once again, that's 646-668-8597.
Okay, so regarding your the temporary change argument, uh, you're, you're referring it to a temporary change argument because it's basically the argument that says that even through this temporary change, such as falling asleep, or we fall asleep for about eight hours every night, we retain our personal identity through that eight-hour change, despite the fact that uh, that we're no longer immediately exercising our rational faculties, but we still remain ourselves through that because that's only a temporary change, not a permanent one. Is that uh, what, what the naming of the argument has to do with, or is that something oh, else? Oh, no, that's, that's, almost, that's almost exactly right. I, the only qualification I would say is um, the temporary change kind of case or scenario helps to bring before our minds those kinds of cases where we can most easily see that you do not need certain kinds of features in order to still be you and in order to still have serious moral status. Um, I would not want to say that uh, you only have a temporary, excuse me, let me start that sentence over. I would not want to say I would not want to say that you stop being you if the change is a permanent change. And I would not want to say that you stop being you, uh, oh, excuse me, or I would not want to say that you lose your moral status if the uh, temporary change turns out to be a permanent change. Hmm. So uh, let me clarify that. Um, Part of the difference in a case where it's a temporary change and you get your powers all back again Hmm. and a permanent change where you lose your powers uh, like and, and never regain them again mm. is that you know in the case where you get, you lose a power and get it back again it's, it's it's very easy to see that during the temporary phase you still had the power to regain the power in other words mm. you still had the higher order capacity to regain the lower order capacity right um, it's it, people sometimes need that reminder I believe because they're tempted to say, oh, my goodness, well, if I, if I deteriorate um, and I, I lose my concept of a self because of Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's disease or something like that, but I'm still you know, lingering around in a biological state, um, then, then that's not really me anymore. Um, and that individual doesn't really have serious moral status anymore. And what I want to say is, uh, wait a minute, don't don't go to that conclusion so quickly. Let's instead think about how you still maintain during that time the the power to regain the power. It's just that it turns out maybe you don't actually regain the power. Mm. I'm not sure if, if that was clear or not. Yeah, yeah, it is. Said, but... An example I, I remember because I, I've read Moreland's and Ray's book Body and Soul as well, and something they talk about in that book is that even if you permanently lose one of your faculties, such as your sight, if you become blind, it doesn't follow then that you lose your capacity for sight. And, and an example they use is, you know, 50 years ago, if somebody needed a cornea transplant, that would have been impossible. And so they would have permanently lost their sight. But today we can do cornea transplants and repair someone's eyes who needs who need that cornea. And so even though 50 years ago it would have represented a permanent loss, we would still right. say that that they had they still had that capacity. Uh, it's just it was blocked by an external factor, by disease or, or whatever, and they couldn't get it back because medical technology hadn't yet progressed to the point where we can actually repair that. But we would still say that they right. still had that capacity. They just couldn't exercise it. 
That's right. And I think that that is a, a feature that many people will often recognize, uh, even if they aren't fully committed to like a full-blown Aristotle or Aquinas approach to these things. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I try to hunt a few of those folks down and, you know, quote them to illustrate that this is a reasonable kind of thing to think. And then mm-hmm. it's a further matter of connecting up those thoughts about how you still maintain these capacities with something that accounts for your moral status as based in these capacities. Okay, so then we would say that the unborn, then the unborn human embryo and fetus counts as one of us as a member of, well, as an individual with serious moral status then, because they have these capacities that they will eventually be be able to immediately exercise, but they have these at sort of a latent level. And so because they have these human capacities at the latent level, they still count as something with serious moral status because these capacities exist in the individual. Is that correct? Or is that's that... right. That's, that's exactly right. That's the argument. Okay. Yeah, because because uh, you do make a distinction in your book between two different kinds of temporary change arguments, the metaphysical one, which I uh, outlined earlier, and then the moral temporary change argument, which uh, which essentially says that if your capacity to think at some order or other is present in you at a given time, then you have serious moral status at that time, provided there is no other property that can do the work of grounding your serious moral status. Um, that, that's kind of a, a summary of the argument. Is that, I mean, is that like accurately representing your moral yeah. temporary change argument? Okay. Yes, yeah, that's so then, exactly right. And, uh, well, I mean, no, it's, it's, a, it's a great argument. I think it's a powerful argument for the pro-life position, personally. Now, is it just the capacity to think that is necessary to have at a given time, or were you just using that as representative of of any capacity? Um, I was using the capacity to think as a convenient illustration to be a placeholder for really whatever typical set of human capacities a normal adult human person has. So that may sound a little bit like hand-waving, but I was actually trying to avoid trying to state, oh, it's the capacity to think that really matters the most, or it's the capacity to to love that really matters the most, or it's the capacity to communicate that really matters the most. Those are actually fairly common debates that people have when it comes to drawing lines between humans and non-human animals, and for that matter, even drawing lines between some non-human animals and other non-human animals. The thrust of my book really wasn't solving that particular debate. It was more a matter of trying to say, look, there are typical human capacities, which include the ability to think, the ability to communicate, the ability to love, the ability to feel things, and thousands of other capacities. And what I'm trying to focus on is how it's the, it's the possession of those typical human capacities that you and I maintain throughout our existence, especially when you look at it in terms of, like, the higher order dimensions of those capacities. The, yeah, well, you the, Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, uh, you, you definitely cover a lot of ground in your book, so I think you can certainly be forgiven for not talking about literally everything that has to do with this uh, with this particular issue. So, Thanks. Um, <laughs> I, I think that I, I give it a name of 
like the, the normalizing approach, which basically mm. says, look, I'm not going to fight people in this book over uh, whether it's the communicate the communication capacities or whether it's the cognitive thinking capacities or whether it's more of like the emotional feeling capacities. Um, I'm just going to say, you know, a human, a typical human has all of those. And so mm. I'm going to say, you know, look, uh, whatever the, that set turns out to be, mm. um, that's the set I'm interested in. Now, this, uh, of course, is a question that, that anyone who raises this sort of issue is going to have to address in like a Q&A uh, or, or especially in their book. But uh, what about cases in which the fetus will never develop the immediately exercisable capacity for, for some functions, such as anencephalic fetuses? Do they still right. have serious moral status or do they not count as, as a, a human with typical human capacities? Yeah, this is a, a difficult kind of case, and the way I handle it in the last chapter is to treat this kind of case like the cornea transplant that you and I were talking about just a moment ago. What I want to say in that case is the current state of technology does not allow us to give those anencephalic human individuals the, the developmental tools to, to live long enough and to thrive and to flourish. But um, I would say they still have these latent or blocked capacities to develop these abilities to think and these abilities to love and these abilities to communicate. It's just that our technology doesn't allow them to realize those. Mm. So I, I would say that they still have the kind of typical mm human capacities um, that you and I have. And uh, I can elaborate on that a little more if you want, but that's the basic line I uh, take. Well, sure, if, if you don't mind. Yeah, because I, I don't, you know, I don't mind if you go off on tangents or anything. I brought you here because you're the expert. So, so I'm happy to let you talk as much as you, as much as you want, because I think that the information you have to present is, uh, you know, it's beneficial and w worth paying attention to. So yeah, by all means, if you, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. Um, so uh, when it comes to the anencephalic human being, um, I, I feel inclined to ask people to imagine um, what it would be like for them to go through the kind of change as a normal adult human being that somehow gradually deteriorates their body and their brain to the stage where they are really in the state like an anencephalic human being. Uh, in other words, imagine a case kind of like this movie with Brad Pitt a couple of years ago, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Um, that's a case where, you know, an individual is born and it, it begins the process of, like, aging, but it's almost like in reverse. Like, the individual uh, it starts off with the body of, like, a 95-year-old human and then it gradually gets uh, to the to the body of like a 65 year old and then a 25 year old and then a 15 year old and then a 5 year old and then like a 5 month old and so you know that's a case of sort of the abnormal developmental path uh, and what I'm imagining in the case of a human like you and I is imagine that you gradually deteriorate so that your ability to think 
or your ability to love, your ability to communicate is is like that of an anencephalic human infant. And then I would ask the person, do you uh, survive that change and do you still have the sort of moral status that's a serious moral status throughout the phases of that change? Uh, now, you may already have some thoughts about that as I describe it, but then I ask people to imagine, well, imagine that you were somehow able to get turned around. Right? Imagine that uh, you do this deterioration gradually to what well, you're like in an encephalic human infant, and then a wonder cure comes along that allows that process to be reversed. So you end up getting back all of your abilities and all of your powers that you have right now, where you're a healthy, happy, fully functioning human adult. Um, then let's talk about what happened just then. I would say you would still be you throughout the change of deterioration and recovery, and you would still have serious moral status throughout the process of deterioration and recovery. <laughs> and so I believe that if you look at yourself during that quote-unquote anencephalic phase of your existence, then you can take what you learn about yourself during that anencephalic phase of your existence and you can use your imagination to think about how that's exactly how a normal anencephalic human infant starts off its life with a set of typical human capacities. Um, only right now we don't have the wonder cure to help that unfortunate individual to thrive um, in their bodily form. Um, right now. So uh, there's there's various ways of pushing back against this, of course, uh, and many of the, I think, really smart pro-life philosophers might want to be very cautious with the anencephalic case because they they want to say maybe that is a case where you don't really have a human individual with typical human capacities to begin with you just have like the shell of a human or something like that. But um, from my limited study of anencephaly, I'm not persuaded that that's the best way of looking at it. I think it's, it's better to view that case of the anencephalic human as one of us and yeah. endowed with typical human capacities, but just in the unfortunate state of not having the cure for anencephaly. I mean, uh, you know, people in the last year, and I, I confess I haven't been following this with respect to anencephaly as much as I should, but uh, people in the past year or so have been very excited about changes in genetic technology with the CRISPR and stuff like that, um, where, you know, various kinds of genetic modifications may be coming um, in the next several years. To, to help improve the health status of different individuals, different human individuals, especially, right? It's already being tried out in non-human animals. Hmm. And I'm, I'm wondering, I'm wondering whether the future of that could ever be so helpful to anencephalic human infants that they could actually do genetic modification to individuals who are currently diagnosed with anencephaly. That's kind of speculative on my part. I'm not trying to, forecast mm -hmm. that that's actually coming anytime soon. But right. I think that I think that using those kinds of technological breakthroughs as ways of thinking more carefully about anencephaly can help to illustrate why, look, that that individual really is one of us. Mm -hmm. Now of course, let me back up and say 
just because you take my view on this, it doesn't automatically resolve all the hard cases about like this poor British child, Charlie Gard, or other kinds of cases of uh, beautiful human individuals who we just lack the technology to cure or to help. Um, so, yeah, I hope that maybe that's clear that uh, just because an individual is one of us, that doesn't always mean that you have to use uh, every single technology to give them every last moment of embodied existence that you can possibly right. squeeze out. That's a, that's yeah. a difficult cho- choice that parents have to make on their own many times. But Right. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. Now, I've never actually seen the movie uh, about Benjamin Button, but I, I have heard of it. And I've always been kind of curious, like, did, did it, uh, did the movie talk about how, how he was able to be born as a 95 year old, uh, in a 95 year old body? Yeah. That's one of the sort of, uh, in my opinion, sort of weird plot gaps in it. I mean, he, oh. <laughs> he does have a, a typical birth and then his mother, his mother dies, I believe shortly after giving birth. Mm-hmm. And then his father takes one look at him and says, Oh my gosh, this is kind of a, uh, child that, um, looks like a very old human being, even though it's just a very small human being. And so the father mm-hmm. gives up the child for, like, it's not even really an official adoption. He takes the baby to an orphanage and leaves the baby on the front step of the orphanage. And then the, I think that the the person comes to the door and picks up this baby and likes to look at it and says, wow, you look different, but I'm still going to love you and take care of you. And so. Yeah. Okay. So it sounds like there might just be some kind of like hyper aging that happens between when he's born and when he's given away for adoption or something. Uh, yeah, the movie's not that clear. I mean, in some mm-hmm. ways the suggestion is you don't know what happened in utero to, mm-hmm. to oh. cause this human individual to somehow get its biological clock all strained. Right. Um, okay. It's really more of a parable, I think, on how aging and human existence never put together in a puzzling way. But okay. yeah. So, I mean, uh, but, but let me just say that cases where children are born with like a really unusual genetic condition, I forget the exact name of it, but they are, they, they look to be aging a lot faster. Um, mm. I want to say it's progeria. I'm kind of using my poor memory to remember the exact name of this, but that kind of a case, uh, you know, they still have the same human capacities as you and I do, I believe. Right. Uh, it's just, they may, they may not survive, uh, very long because of the kind of, uh, genetic condition that they have. Now, as I was reviewing your book to prepare for the interview today, uh, I noticed that you didn't talk much, if at all, about things like human nature. Does does the concept of nature or human nature not fit in with your view, or are you basically talking about human nature just in different words uh, in the context yeah, of the book? That, that's a great question, and, and I would suggest it's probably that second option. I'm probably really talking about human nature uh, just without the okay. phrase human nature. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, in some ways, human nature is a shorthand for talking about the typical capacities of human organisms. 
And, you know, it sometimes conveys a little bit more than that. Like it's not just sort of neutral to, uh, you know, what are the many capacities that people have, right? People would say, no, it's, it's in our nature to, to actually love one another and to be musical and to be um, thoughtful rather than to hate one another and to be dissonant and to be sort of a slob intellectually, right? Mm-hmm. So in right. other words, all those things are some of the capacities that we have, right? We have this full range of what we can do, some of it very good, some of it very evil. And some people would want to say it's our human nature to have a bent towards part of that range. In other words, mm-hmm. to be good and to be true and to be beautiful and stuff like that. Um, right. So, you know, I'm not really trying to pick any fights with people who uh, have a certain way of looking at human nature. That's probably the reason why I don't really speak in terms of human nature a lot in the book. Um, mm-hmm. It's also a way of trying to say, look, even if you're not already predisposed to talk about the natures of things, whether it's the nature of trees and acorns and dogs and cats and uranium atoms or whatever, a lot of people still are happy to talk about the dispositions of things, the capacities, the powers. And so in some ways it's a way of bringing in my argument to have a conversation with people who might be skittish about talking about human nature, but they're happy to talk about like dispositions. Okay, so returning to your moral temporary change argument, where you argue that if your capacity to think or your typical human capacity is present at some order or other, is present in you at a given time, then you have serious moral status at that time, provided there is no other property that can do the work of grounding your serious moral status. You do engage with a few counter views to that in, in your chapter. And some get kind of kind of technical and kind of involved. And so I, I don't think we'd have the time to really talk about them all here. So obviously, if, I would encourage anyone who's interested in your responses to those to go out and get this book because it's great information. But if we could maybe just talk about a couple of those that you that you engage with in the book. This is something that, that I hear fairly often when I talk to abortion choice people is that well, one thing that they consider important is that you have to have had the capacity present in the past in order to to ground your uh, your moral status as a human being, and this is one of the alternative uh, one of the alternative properties that you engage with in your book is that some people would argue that once you've kind of passed the threshold, you've had that capacity in the past, then you have serious moral status basically. And so, how would we then respond to someone who says that? You know, like, for example, when, when you talk about how someone, like, if you're responding to a psychological account, you respond with someone who's in a reversible coma, your argument would go essentially that the unborn are like the person in the coma in that the person in the coma who's expected to recover will engage their faculties again in the future. And so the human embryo and fetus are like that person in the coma, that they'll be able to engage these faculties in the future. And so the response usually is that, well, okay, but they've engaged these faculties in the past. And so that's what sets the person in the coma apart from the human embryo or fetus is that they've exercised these capacities in the past. And that's what grounds their status, why we can't kill someone in a coma when we could kill an embryo or a fetus. So how would we then respond to that idea that exercising the property in the past is what does the work of grounding our moral status? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I, uh, I, I could, tell you where this is at in my response to it in the book uh, 
people are wanting to look at it, it it's a really short short stretch from pages 68 to page 70. Um, and you know the, the kind of case uh, that I give um, could I actually read a paragraph uh, from it? If, uh, yeah, or yeah. Would well, you prefer I mean, me just to speak to speak extemporaneously? No, not extemporaneously, uh, but would you? Rather... Yeah, it's up to um, you. Whatever you'd be more comfortable with. Uh, by all means, uh, feel free to do. Okay. Well, um, let me let me try to just read the paragraph that helps okay. it uh, without slowing down too much or speeding up too much. Um, what I ask people to do is to think of a case where, you know, there's two human organisms, you can call them A and B, and they're identical twins, and they're nurtured and developed in a very highly refined science laboratory from conception onwards. So imagine A and B are exactly similar in their genetic constitution and their environmental stimuli and so on throughout their entire biological lives. So A and B are grown up like this for many years. Each of them is developed to the point where she has, say, the first order capacity to think, but neither A and B is developed to the point where she actually possesses the like immediate capacity to think. And that's because, if we follow this example, there is some neurophysiological event, the occurrence of which is the final necessary step in the process of an organism coming to possess the immediate capacity to think. And the scientists artificially delay the occurrence of this event for both A and for B. And I say perhaps there's two key neurons that need to communicate with one another, and the scientists have inserted a magnetically activated physical barrier that functions like a gate so unless activated, the barrier will remain closed, preventing those two key neurons from communicating with another. But once activated, this little barrier opens up, which allows the two key neurons to communicate with one another. So basically, what we've described so far is A and B are both in a kind of technologically induced sleep or technologically induced coma. Each of the two individuals, A and B, is highly developed enough to the point where the push of a certain button will allow her to wake up and will obtain this immediate capacity to think. And now, imagine that on a certain day, both A and B are going to get their respective buttons pushed. But on this special day, a double malfunction occurs. The first malfunction is that A's button works for just a moment, but then stops working. Right? Perhaps the physical barrier is magnetically activated, allowing the two key neurons to begin communicating with one another, but then the physical barrier becomes deactivated. It closes down. Once again, it prevents the two key neurons from communicating with one another. But the second malfunction is that B's button gets stuck and does not work at all. Okay, so the result of this is that A, for just a moment, is allowed to develop the immediate capacity to think, but then A lapses back into the state she was in before the button was pushed, hmm. whereas B is not allowed to develop the immediate capacity to think, not even for a moment. And so the effect of this double malfunction is that neither A nor B have the immediate capacity to think, but A did have the immediate capacity to think 
at least for a moment. Now, would you want to say there that A now has like serious moral status, but B does not? I suggest this is kind of hard to believe. So imagine that you walk into the science lab shortly after this double malfunctions happen, without knowing how it happened, right? That is, even though you know that one of these two individuals, A or B, had her special moment, you do not know whether it was A or whether it was B. And now a scientist comes along and tells you that, you know what, only one of these two human organisms actually has serious moral status. You might be quite perplexed. After all, A and B will both develop this immediate capacity to think at the same time if they're just allowed to. So it seems reasonable to think that if A has serious moral status, B also does. The mere fact that A had once possessed the immediate capacity to think should not bear the moral weight that that strategy insists that it bear. Okay, so now there's ways of... um, going on in reply to this, you know, someone could say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's not just the immediate capacity to think that matters. It's the process of actually thinking, right? It's crucial whether actually thinking has occurred. This may be more like what you were describing. Indeed, actual thinking of a very special kind. Maybe it's self-awareness over time. Maybe it's accompanied by some attitude like desire or care that that attaches to whatever it is that continues over time. So, I mean, maybe this objection would say, look, our intuitions about this case of A and B would be really different if A had spent a period of time thinking about herself, recognizing that she's the same enduring one living, wanting that living to go on, and then sinking back into unconsciousness. Hmm. Okay, so um, the way I reply to that is that I, I actually do not think that amending the example so that A has actual self-awareness and these attitudes are going to vindicate the strategy. Um, so then I imagine a case that's a little bit different. It does not involve developing twins. Okay. So I imagine, um, imagine a different A and B. Imagine A is a normal, healthy adult with a very rich and satisfying life. Imagine A has the immediate capacity to think and A is also endowed with self-awareness and the desire to go on living. And now, imagine that A goes through a temporary change, okay? And so when she changes, um, she gets replicated in one of these kind of replication booths that we talked about before, these sort of Star Trek things or things that come from Derek Parfit's famous uh, discussion. So A, individual A, is preserved intact and is not destroyed at all, but... A has a perfect replica B, who is instantly produced across the laboratory. B has precisely the same sort of molecular structure that A had. B is functioning at precisely the same level as A. Furthermore, B has exactly the same capacities as A has. Both A and B, in this kind of case, lack the immediate capacity to think. And both A and B will have the immediate capacity to think, along with self-awareness, the desire to go on living at the very same time if they're just allowed to. Okay, so now if you've built this case up in your mind, what you've got is, uh, if you've got the strategy that says, you know, having thoughts actually matter, you would have to say that A has serious moral status, but B does not have serious moral status. 
Okay, but I, I want to suggest that's kind of hard to believe. Again, imagine you as a sort of Johnny come lately. You walk into the lab shortly after this replication has happened without knowing how it had happened. So even though you know that one of these two, A or B, is a replica, you do not know whether it is A or B. That's the replica. And now a scientist tells you that only one of these two human organisms um, has serious moral status. I'd like to say, hey, you'd be kind of perplexed. After all, A and B are going to both develop this immediate capacity to think at the same time, if they're just allowed to. And um, it seems reasonable, I suggest, to think that if A has serious moral status, B also does. And so the mere fact that A had once possessed the immediate capacity to think, along with actual self-consciousness and these pro-attitudes, that should not bear so much moral weight. Okay? Mm. And so I, I want to say, just to sort of finish out this kind of response, that in these kinds of cases involving identical twins that are grown up in a lab and involving the replica case using this special machine, uh, you can admit that there might be some morally relevant differences between A and B without admitting that only A has serious moral status. So here's the example I give. In the replica case, imagine that A had worked really hard and had put her earnings into a savings account right before falling asleep and getting replicated. Now imagine that A and her replica B both come out of their sleep, and they both claim to own the money in the savings account. Okay, I do believe that A has a stronger claim to the money in that savings account than B, since A actually saved the money, whereas B merely has pseudo-memories of saving the money. money. Okay? However, you know, I, I believe that not all morally relevant properties are dependent like this upon the history, the actual history of an individual. Okay? So the upshot of those kinds of cases would be you could still have serious moral status at a given time, even if certain things were not true of you in your actual past. Mm-hmm. That's a long okay. response to what I think you had set up as the kind of common case that you hear, <laughs> where people know, say, you got to actually have this actual history, this actual past. And so yeah. basically these kinds of arguments, the twinning argument that I brought up and uh, the replica argument, they're kind of ways of saying, Look, let's try to think of a creative case where you've got two individuals who are otherwise just like each other, but one of them has the past and the other one doesn't. Do you really want to say in that kind of case that that, that past uh, difference makes such a huge difference? Um, now, uh, I'm not sure if you've ever brought up a case like this with people, but I think that some people might be persuaded by it. Or if they're not fully persuaded on the spot, which is kind of rare, um, they, they at least can go back and chew on it and think about, do I really want to put that much weight on the, the past history of an individual? And if, it, uh, if it matters so much that you actually have these first moments of consciousness, um, then you're kind of committed to saying, well, yeah, you've got to treat one of them as having this serious moral status and the other one doesn't have serious moral status because it doesn't have a right. history. Okay, and then another one that you addressed, this was kind of interesting to me because in, in this one, you actually kind of respond to a pro-life argument 
uh, when you talk about moral status in the future, that it's not the fact that certain things will be true of us in the future. And at the beginning of this interview, you actually talked about how uh, Don Marquise's article, Why Abortion is Immoral, was kind of influential in, in your yeah. Uh, kind of intellectual life starting out as, you know, as a pro-life person. And then here in your book, you're talking about how simply having certain things that will be or may be true of us in the future are not enough to ground our serious moral status. And so I was hoping you might be able to just kind of expand on that a little bit. Yeah, sure. And I'll do this without quoting anything from the book. But the basic (laughs) idea that I, that's okay. The basic idea that I push um, in the, in the book without actually quoting myself again is is the idea that I do not think that it's necessary for an individual to actually be going to have a really good future, or as Marquis has put it, a future of value. Um, there's different ways that he has explained this uh, over the years, but he's pretty consistent in taking a a careful uh, pro-life approach um, that's focused on the fact that, look, if you did not end this individual's life right now, then it would certainly or very probably end up having a valuable set of experiences in the future. You know, that that approach actually gets you really far in a pro-life discussion. Um, But I think that it's actually... Um, not necessary, even though it may be very helpful. Um, And that's because I think that there are cases where an individual is doomed. They're doomed to die no matter what you do or don't do. And I still want to say in those kinds of cases, there's a strong moral presumption against killing them. And indeed, they have serious moral status, even if they are doomed to die anyhow. So, I mean, there's, yeah. there's a, any number of cases where you can make this point. Like, imagine a natural catastrophe is going to kill everybody uh, in the whole world. Um, there, your last night on Earth is still a night where you should still be treated with dignity and respect, and you have still have serious moral status. People shouldn't just right. go around uh, feeling like they can now have a license to kill, like 007 <laughs> or something, because, <laughs> right. you know, the, the world is near, right? Um, right. I, I also... You know, I also imagine more local cases where, you know, it's not that everyone's going to die, but it's that you definitely are going to. And so I have a very vividly described case that's kind of hard for some people to read or hear, but I can put it in sort of sanitary terms here. Imagine that, that, you know, something is going to kill you, whether it's a weapon or whether it's a group of people. And no matter – actually, let let me turn it around. Imagine you were a bystander you're a bystander to someone else who is certainly going to die within the next few minutes and nothing you can do can really save them. So whether it's because of a mob of angry people or whether it's because of a weapon that's going to kill them, you are in a position where even if you wanted to help them, your efforts would be futile. You would not be able to help them. Uh, You still should not think that, Oh, well, because they're going to die anyhow, uh, now they don't have serious moral status, right? So that's why right. I, I want to say these kinds of cases where having a future, sometimes people call it a future like ours, sometimes people call it a future of value. I want to say that the future um, needs to be really carefully uh, 
spilled out about how relevant it is. Yeah. And of course, the, the the way this kind of imports itself into cases of more ordinary life and death issues is that I think that even when a person is in their last days of natural living, they still maintain serious moral status, even if it's clear that technology available is not going to save their life. So I, yeah. I want to say that, you know, it's not that all bets are off and you can just you use human beings as uh, organ donors without their consent, or you can just use embryos without any of their consent for medical experiments or medical treatments or whatever. Um, because I, I want to say those individuals still have serious moral status, even if they're doomed. Uh, right. So I mean, this is actually really relevant for the cases of all those cryopreserved human embryos from years and years of in virtual fertilization and people saving their embryos but then not using them. Um, what I want to say is that's a case where we should not think of them as just not having any moral status. Um, we should think of them as having a very serious moral status, even if it turns out that they're going to not survive um, because people are not going to implant them in wombs or artificial wombs or yeah. have technology to, to raise them up. So would you say then that the future value argument might still have value if we treat it as a sufficient condition, not a necessary one? Yeah. Or would you say we should just re replace it with your, your argument, which is superior to it altogether and not even use the future value argument? Oh, you know what? I would actually say uh, keep using it because Marquis is careful in most of the things I've read from his original article on. He's careful yeah. to say that it should be used as a sufficient argument. It's a sufficiency account. Um, it's yeah. not one that really makes a big fuss about making it necessary. Now, some people might try to take it and say, look, this is necessary and sufficient for having the right to life or having, you know, yeah. uh, killing be immoral in a given case. And, and in right. that case, I think that they – they accidentally make a make a mistake they don't need to make. Right. So yeah, okay. I, I would say that really what the future of value argument helps us to see is that what is it that grounds the future of value? It's a combination of a the the capacities of an individual and b the kinds of ex external circumstances that the individual is going to find themselves in. And so really, my argument is merely saying, look, let's look a little bit deeper than just the fact that they're going to have a valuable future. Let's look at why they're going to have a valuable future. It's not right. because of their external circumstances that, that I'm focusing in on. It's because of the fact that this is an individual that is a locus of various kinds of capacities. Mm -hmm. So it kind of tries to ground the um, – moral status more in the individual herself than in the fortunate or unfortunate circumstances that she may find herself in. I have a, a, a Facebook friend named Hassan Mohammed, and he actually, he, he actually told me that uh, you're one of his favorite uh, bioethicists. He's a, a fan of yours. Oh, great. And yeah, I was hoping he'd be around to, to call in today. He said he was interested in doing so, but he lives overseas. And so uh, it, it was early morning for him. So I guess he wasn't able to, to make it up. But he did actually submit uh, a few questions that he had for you, which I'll go ahead and, and cover since, um, since our, our time is drawing to a, a close pretty quickly here. So I'll, I'll ask sure. you a couple of the ones that he had for you. 
Great, and I'll try to be quick so we can get through all those that you want to ask. Okay, so the first one he, he was curious about is, does your view of capacities work on psychological views of identity? In other words, even if we are not identical to the fetus that we came from, doesn't it still make sense to say that they have certain capacities inherently? Oh, that's a good question. Um, and I would say, yes, it actually does. Uh, now, let me spell it out. Uh, whatever it is that you are, you have a beginning to your existence and an end to your existence. And during the time that you exist, I would say it's correct to say that you have the capacities that you have um, from the very first moment. And so, yeah, uh, let me just say, even though the psychological accounts that say time your beginning of existence at 14 days or maybe, you know, sometime after birth or sometime in between the second and third trimester or whatever, even those, even though those accounts, I don't think give you the best results, like the most accurate results, they still are accounts that can be compatible with the idea that you are an individual that has certain capacities and you've got them from the time that you start to the time that you end. Okay. And he was also curious if you ever plan on writing a second edition of your book and if any of your views on any issues in your book have changed over the last seven years. Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know what? I do not have plans in the work to write a second edition of the book, but I uh, I do not foreclose that option either. Uh, the material that I used in constructing the book really was just a chunk of what um, I had been writing as a graduate student. Um, and so there was a lot of material that did not make it into either my dissertation or my book. And um, I could conceivably spin out some articles from that other material, and I also could conceivably spin out a sequel to the book, um, although the, a sequel is not currently in the works. Um, my views about what has changed in the past seven years, um, I haven't really been forced to change my view or persuaded to change my view on anything uh, significant in the book. Um, I would like to explore in future work um, some of the problem cases, like when people talk about um, uh, cases of human-like creatures, um, but they aren't necessarily human or fully human creatures. I mean, people are doing experiments now with, um, you know, genetics, and they're starting to talk about the possibility of creating, like, um, hybrid creatures, where it's not just like combining a donkey and a mule to some sort of creature or, uh, you know, uh, uh, two other kinds of non-human creatures, but they're talking about, you know, creating human slash non-human chimeras or hybrid creatures. And so, you know, I think that my account would, help to explain why those creatures still have a very high moral status, maybe serious moral status. Um, I also think that it would be nice to spell out, honestly, I think it would be nice to spell out a version of this argument that is a little bit less philosophical, but a little bit more popular 
a little bit more accessible to people who don't have either the time or the interest in uh, kind of going deep in all the problem cases. So I'd like to do something that tries to equip other uh, people of goodwill with a shorter argument that they could easily give to their friends and neighbors and trying to help them see the wisdom and the coherence of a pro-life position, uh, okay. at least when it comes to the moral status of the human individuals. Um, finally, uh, I guess it, it may go without saying, but there's a whole range of pro-choice articles out there and books that focus upon Judith Jarvis Thompson's kind of arguments that deal with bodily rights and how you know, even if you admit that the fetus has the full moral status of one of us, you have to still overcome the idea that the fetus is using the woman's body as a life support system, and that brings in all kinds of questions about just when do you have the obligation to keep supporting another person's life. I don't really get into that in the book, and I think that those kinds of things are uh, important to keep an eye on and keep discussing. But really, yeah. my, my whole argument in the book is, is more trying to shore up and strengthen the core philosophical point behind a pro-life argument, which is that the fetus has a very high moral status, just like you and I, that makes it a serious uh, thing to, to risk its life or to, to end its life. Okay. And Not he just also... a serious thing, but a wrong thing. Oh, Go ahead. Yeah, and then he also wanted to know, how is it that we know that all humans have a rational nature, or how we know that all typical human capacities are, in fact, typical to all human beings? Um, right. Uh, well, here, in some ways, I'm doing a similar method that I do to uh, all the other kinds of cases. I say, imagine your own case, and imagine what kinds of changes you could go through and still survive them if you were able to come back from them. And cases where you lose the rational nature, excuse me, I said that too quickly, cases where you lose your ability to use your reason and then regain it, kind of, I think, illustrate how you can imagine becoming non-rational and then rational again. And so yeah. it suggests that your deeper nature is a rational nature. And so partly because of my methodology throughout, I ask the reader to say, imagine it's you that goes through these changes and then comes back from them, um, and then extrapolate that to other human individuals. Um, I guess, you know, the, the, the question would be, are there cases of human individuals where we have good reason for thinking that they don't have a rational nature? And I would suggest the answer to that is no, although I recognize that the anencephalic human being is the typical best answer to my question. I kind of explained earlier why I think the anencephalic case should be seen as an individual with a rational nature, or if you don't want to put it that way, with you know the anencephalic still has the typical human capacities that include the capacities for rationality and love and affection. Okay, now we do have a caller. Great. We only have a we only have a few minutes left with us, so caller, if you can um, keep your question brief, uh, we can go ahead and take you real quick. Uh, so go ahead and state your name and then your question, please. Oh, looks like we may have lost the caller. Well, um, to the 
caller who who uh, who we lost. Uh, sorry about uh, about not getting you on there, but we are actually coming to the end of our time together here. So, uh, Russell, where can people find you online? Are there any other websites or books that you'd like to plug while we have you with us? Oh, thank you. Actually, I have an academic web page at my faculty uh, institution of California State University, Sacramento. Really, if you just look my first name and last name up, you'll probably come to my faculty web page, which has, you know, the stuff that I'm uh, linking to. It has uh, some other small links and my CV if you wanted to look up other articles that I have. That's, that's currently the best place for finding my stuff. And uh, once okay. I get a little bit more sophisticated, then I'll probably have a, uh, a better website with lots more things like audio and uh, video and links like that. Okay. So, yeah, I'd like to thank you, uh, the audience, for listening. And, Russell, again, I'd like to thank you for coming on. I really enjoyed uh, hearing you talk about the issue. Clinton, thank you very much for having me on, and I'm uh, glad to be able to participate in your podcast. Um, I hope that your listeners are uh, enjoying your show, and I hope that today's show uh, contributed to their enjoyment. Yeah, so if you also feel that the information here has benefited you, we'd love for you to share this around on social media. Uh, We'd love you to rate and review us either on iTunes or on our Facebook page. uh, You can find us on Facebook at Pro-Life Thinking. Now, this is a weekly podcast, and it takes a lot of work to put together a podcast each week on top of all the other work that I do in the pro-life movement. As Greg Cunningham of Center for Bioethical Reform says, there are more people working full-time to kill unborn babies than there are people working full-time to save them. I subsist off of donations from financial supporters. People like you keep me being able to do the work that I do. If you like what we're doing with this podcast and would like to support my work as a full-time pro-life advocate, you can go to www.prolifetraining.com, which is the Life Training Institute website site and click on donate in the menu on the top. You can give a one-time gift or you can give a monthly gift. Just be sure to put my name in the notes section so that Life Training Institute knows to put your donation into my account. And if you'd like to donate to this podcast specifically, indicate that in the notes as well. Donations are also tax deductible. So coming up on Sunday, uh, Nathan and Aaron will be joining us again, and we're going to be continuing our three-part series on the hard cases. In this particular this particular week, we're going to be joined by Janique Stewart, also of Life Training Institute, and we're going to be talking about the case of rape and incest and how to address those with truth, but also with compassion. So once again, I thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. 
Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.